This is Hearts of Oak Podcast. Free speech, religious disagreement, children's rights, and open and free discussion on any topic are bedrock to a democratic free society. And we seek to promote and champion these basic rights. Join us. Let's keep the conversation going. Tara Dahl, it's wonderful to have you back with us. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Peter, for having me. Always good to have you. And of course, people can uh, catch you on somewhere where I never delve, which is Instagram. Instagram.com forward slash Tara underscore Dahl. Uh, that I think is the is that's the best place to find you, Tara. Yes, it is. Yeah. Apart from on more regularly in Real America Voice. But Real uh, America's voice. <laughs> obviously, all of that. Um, and I know that many of the viewers will have seen your uh couple of weeks actually long uh, postings from Israel and I'm really delighted that you made the time today to come on and to share some of those experiences because I think you talked to a lot of commentators, military experts, politicians, but actually to talk to someone who's been there on the ground is is um is fairly rare I think. So um I'm looking forward to finding out but tell us how do you get there? I guess you don't just get a there are lots of flights cancelled. So I guess it's not just a case of going and booking a, a ticket with any regular airline, is it? Uh, you can get there. I went to Greece and then from Athens, then I flew into Israel. But the airlines are limited now. Definitely the U.S. airlines are limited. They do not fly in and out of Israel. But you can, you can. there's options to fly. There's a lot of flights still that are coming in and out. But the airport in Tel Aviv was very quiet. Uh, but there was more, I think, more people and more flights than I anticipated. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, what was the conversation? Cause you're, you're no stranger to going to, to war zones. Uh, uh, when I was last over after my war room slot, Steve was uh, regaling me with stories of him talking to you in far flung places. Uh, so I guess most people would think, oh, it sounds a bit iffy, but it, it for you, it's, it's, it's part of the job, I guess. Yeah, I was in Israel. I have been, I was in Israel in 2014 to cover the Gaza conflict, the war between Israel and Hamas in 2014 for Breitbart News. And that's when I really saw, like, I had been traveling around the Middle East during the Arab Spring. I had been to Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, really, you know, on the ground with the war on terrorism, but especially during the Arab Spring prior to going to Israel in 2014. And really, I just kind of fell into that because I was on the ground in Egypt during the counter-revolution when you had the 30 million Egyptians go to the street to call for uh, Mohammed Morsi's ouster, the Muslim Brotherhood Brotherhood's ouster in Egypt. And I saw the way that the media was portraying that situation and how the media was impacting our policy. And I saw that it was impacting the Pentagon, it was impacting Congress, because that's how they viewed it. That was their lens on the situation. And so that's how I started to really understand the need for accurate reporting on the ground. Because unless you're on the ground, and you really understand the dynamics, you just read what the headlines are, and then you follow the headlines, and then you base your decisions upon the headlines. So when you look at Israel, 
you look at the headlines, you look at the mainstream media, and it's always has been going back to 2014 and going back to the Arab Spring and just the the coverage from the mainstream media has been pro-Islamist. And that's what I noticed. I noticed that back in 2012, 2013, they were very much pro-Muslim Brotherhood. And so when you look at Israel, you look at the war with Hamas, obviously Hamas is the military arm of the Muslim Brotherhood. That is the, the mainstream media and the angle of it has been very pro-Hamas and anti-Israel, restraining Israel. And so it was so important when I was there in 2014, because I saw that how the mainstream media, and a lot of times they report from Gaza. So you have the mainstream media reporters that are actually in Gaza. Well, if you're reporting from Gaza and you're surrounded by Hamas, you're not going to be very pro-Israel. It's going to impact your reporting because you're afraid for your life, for one thing. But you also have, it's just the angle of the mainstream media. And so going on the ground for this war, I knew because I had already covered the Middle East conflicts and the war, that it's so important to get that perspective because of you can't just follow the headlines. And you're seeing how tainted it is. For an example, with the hospitals, you know how Hamas uses hospitals. And then when Israel hits back at the hospital, then it's Israel's fault and they get charged with war crimes. Well, actually, Hamas uses hospitals and schools for their military headquarters and they launch their rocket attacks from these from the hospitals, from the schools, and they use the children. And so, Peter, when I went there, I knew it's so important to be able to get on the ground and to be able to write accurately of what's happening. And that's exactly what I saw. And, and that definitely uh, was worthwhile because it changes your perspective. Uh can I just ask you, just before getting on to what it was like there, I'm sure the viewers would be curious in how you prep for that, because you're not going into a normal environment. It's not just a tourist or a journalist going to report on an event. Uh, it's into a, a very dangerous situation. Um, how do you prepare? Was it that you had contacts before? Is it uh, Real America's Voice making these contacts? Because obviously you don't want to land on the ground and then begin to spend your time building up those contacts and knowing who to speak to. So how do you kind of go about preparing for that? I think with any time, like any time that I've traveled overseas in the Middle East, it's, you, you know, contacts, you reach out to them, you reach out to your mutual friends that have contacts in Israel. And then you just kind of start with who you know, and then you build off of that. And that's exactly what too, on this trip, if you have your contacts that I've had through my friends here, and then you you know, you let people know that you're coming over. You've, I've been there before. Um, and then you just build on that. And when you're on the ground, it just opens up opportunities because you just build uh, your contacts, your networking on the ground. And one of the important parts of that was um, going up into the north. I was able to go up into the northern part of Israel with the Christian community. So I wasn't only, I was able to see, spend time with the Arab uh, Muslims that are joining the IDF. I spoke with them. I spoke with the Christian community that also served in the IDF. And of course, um, the majority of the Jewish community, but I was able to get all those different perspectives. So when I talk about building those contacts, it's important that, I, that you meet with all sides. And I've always done that. Like when I went to Syria, um, as well, I met with the opposition first who were trying to overthrow Assad. And then I went into Damascus and, and saw the other side. Um, so that's kind of just how I've always done it is, and I depend on the locals. I, I mean, for someone, I guess, as a woman going by myself, I 
definitely, you know, you just have to have like your faith in God and then uh, just trust, you just trust people and you just build contacts and you uh, just build relationships. And what were you kind of expecting when you went out? Because uh, this current situation is simply because Israel have not dealt with the problem previously. Um, And this time, Netanyahu, I think, feels and probably has to actually deal with Hamas living on their border. But what were you kind of expecting uh, when you went over? Because I guess every war situation is different. The relationships with the countries around, the population, um, the sleeper cells they have. There are so many moving parts to the situation. What kind of were you expecting before you headed out? I think I knew what to anticipate because I had been there to cover it uh, previously. So I, I had, I, I knew what to expect. Um, but as far as when we talk about um, preparing for this, like going into Israel, you would think there's so many, you know, p- people that were traveling there that had the, I think one of the highest tourism times before everything got canceled, it was just, they were packed with tours. And one thing that is always, since I went there before a couple times, and then now this trip is that Israel is constantly living under siege. So as you know, like for me going to visit during a wartime, this is the normal for them, Peter. This is how they live. They live under siege. They live every single house, every building, since you land in the airport has a shelter. No matter where you are, every single place you're at, whether it's a restaurant, whether it's a home, if it's a school, if it's a playground, they all have shelters. And just think about how abnormal that is, is that they get hit since Hamas. Um, launched the attack on October 7th, they've been hit with 10,000 rockets from Hamas. 10,000 rockets. But it is the normal life for them. And the Iron Dome intercepts the majority of them. But when the Iron Dome does not intercept them, the shrapnel kills people. Um, the, if that rocket hits, that will that can take out like a huge, that could kill so many people, those rockets. And they take, you know, you take it for granted because of the Iron Dome. But there's multiple times, even like when I was there for my limited time, that if it wasn't for the Iron Dome, you know, you would have probably, you would have been hit by that. You would have been impacted by the shrapnel, but it's, that's not normal. So what they consider normal is not normal. So they constantly, so like for me to say, you go over there and and it looks like while you're going into a war zone, that's how they live. You know, that, that's, that's how they live every day of their lives. Their children have to play in playgrounds that are actually shelters because they want the kids to make it, you know, they don't want kids to feel like they're constantly under war and to live in fear. So what they do is they build their playgrounds as shelters. So when the kids are playing in the tunnels, it's actually a shelter for the kids. And so they only have a few seconds when they hear those sirens go off to be able to go into their shelters, but that's normal for them. So that's something that like it never surprises me just to see how they live their normal their daily lives going to school you know going to their synagogues um, just living their lives going to work and but yet they're constantly under a rocket attack constantly and even the day after th- that I left there was a terrorist attack right in Jerusalem and that's just that's how they live 
Well, there in Israel, there are different parts of the society which engage in this situation differently. You have the the military. Um, maybe you want to just give us some of your thoughts or experiences. You were talking to the military because they are actually on the front line. They are the ones that are trying to remove this which has been a continual threat against Israel, Hamas. Um, and I saw some of the interviews you had with uh, different individuals in the military. Tell us about those conversations with the military. Well, I think the military is, they're very much focused and they're determined and they're resolute on eliminating Hamas. And they're not only on eliminating Hamas, but also Hezbollah. You have to keep in mind too that Hezbollah, there's, 60,000 Israeli citizens that were evacuated out of the north and another 70,000 that were evacuated out of the south. And they're all living in the hotels right now. So you have tens of thousands, over almost 200,000 Israeli citizens that are evacuated right now because of the threat from Hamas and because of the threat from Hezbollah. And so what their perspective, what they were saying is that they're first focusing on Hamas and they're going to eliminate Hamas because just like in 2014, when they were resolute on eliminating Hamas, and then because of the international pressure, a lot because of the Obama administration, they pulled back and they stopped. Well, look what's happened now. Look at what has happened because they didn't finish Hamas back in 2014 or 2021 again. And then look at how they used that ceasefire from 2021. Basically, Hamas was in a, con is a ceasefire since 2021. And instead of honoring that ceasefire, they used it to rebuild, rearm, and, and plan October 7th. And so that's what happens when they say a ceasefire. They're rebuilding and rearming. And then that's what happens. So you have no option. The military has no option. Israel has no option but to eliminate Hamas. And they also have the threat from Hezbollah. So we just have to keep in mind, too, that Hezbollah has... So Hamas used Hezbollah's plan that they have had for over 10 years to invade northern Israel and take hundreds of Israelis hostage, which would put pressure then on the Western countries. That was their, that was their plan. And they did drills. They did planned, like they did the um, planned training previously back in May, 2023, there's video of Hezbollah doing these mock trainings where it was the same attack that Hamas did on October 7th. And so Hezbollah is a greater threat than Hamas, but the, the threat right now, the immediate threat from what my understanding is, is Hamas. They have to eliminate Hamas first, but they will have to deal with Hezbollah and, and they'll have to go back to the UN 1701 where Hezbollah is uh, north of Israel. So they're not on the Israeli border and it has to be enforced by the UN, but they're going to have to deal with the threat from Hezbollah because they have the same plan and those thousands of Israelis will not move back home until the threat from Hezbollah is completely eliminated as well. So they are getting attacked on all fronts and not to mention the attacks that are coming from the West Bank as well. And that's what I've heard too, is that, you know, people are asking why, how did they miss it? The intelligence failure. And it was the biggest intelligence failure they're saying since 1973. Well, they were focused so much on the West Bank. They were focused so much on the threat from Hezbollah. And they were also allowing thousands and thousands of the Gazan civilians to come in every single day on work visas. And those 
Gazans that were coming in on work visas turned against Israel. And a lot of them were the ones that were mapping out the exact locations for Hamas's attack on October 7th. So that is a, that's what I learned talking to people. Probably one of the most things that I took away was that they realized how wrong they were for this two state, you know, two state solution living in peace side by side because they totally used what they were given to the Gazan civilians because the Gazan civilians, 70% of them support Hamas and they use that against uh, Israel. And they, and they use that opportunity where they were coming in on work visas, getting money, and they were the ones to turn against Israel and with all of the maps and, and the locations um, and commit that atrocious attack. So that, that is another takeaway, but I have a lot to say on the Gazan civilians too. Well, let me talk there. Just one other thing you talked about, the, the military um, and the country, I guess, was living in a, a false sense of security because the borders have been fairly peaceful. You've got economic relationships warming up between countries around. Um, and you haven't actually, it's been a long time since I remember hearing of a suicide bomber in Israel on buses or trains, which used to hear of fairly often. Um, that seems to be have been eradicated and with the borders more secure than before. W- was it simply just a, a false sense of security? Israel thinking, actually, um, we've got economic benefits and that's going to trump any inbuilt religious hatred which exists. Yeah, I think it was a false sense of security. And I think a lot too was that they were allowing those uh, the Gazans to come in on those work visas, and they just didn't think that they would do something, you know, to to turn against them when they were allowing so thousands and thousands of them to come in. And one of the, the what really stuck out to me was the kibbutzes that were the the most attacks, the worst attack that took place. The majority of them were. Uh, the, the kind of thinking they call them the liberal, the leftist, because they were they were the ones reaching out, you know, to the Gazan civilians, to Hamas. Some of them, one example was a lady who used not only one lady, but there were other women as well that would for years would bring in the civilians to the hospitals and take care of the children in Gaza. And they murdered her. And they murdered a lot of the people at the kibbutz who were the ones that believed that you could live side by side, the ones that believed that you could have that peace. And that is something that even people that believed for years and years and had been involved in some of like the peace agreements, they said that was their biggest eye opener is how wrong they were, how wrong they were that you could have that two state solution live side by side because there is that that was they want to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. And that was a big wake up call. And that's why I think the perspective is so different. And I heard that there has never been more of a unity within Israel to annihilate and eliminate Hamas than there is now. They said there's it's over 99% of Israel is all unified that you have to eliminate Hamas. And not only Hamas, but Hezbollah in the north as well. Let me come back to you on uh, on Israeli feeling. You mentioned uh, you've got a lot to say on 
the actual people living in Gaza. I don't even want to call them Palestinians, but anyway, we'll not even delve down that uh, rabbit hole. But those living in Gaza, they they seem to, well, the, the world seems to want to blame Israel for the problems happening in Gaza under Hamas. And the world doesn't seem to actually have any issues with Hamas being the government and democracy not functioning, all of that. And and it seems as though the, the people there, certainly the media tell us that they are they all their ire and anger is against Israel for their problems and not against Hamas. I mean tell us about kind of what the conversations, what you learned about actually those people living in Gaza. That was something that I learned right away when we were at the kibbutz. They were talking about how uh, people aren't mentioning and they weren't talking about the 3,000 Gazan civilians that broke in and breached the wall after Hamas made the initial uh, breach. There were thousands of Gazan civilians, that all Palestinians, that came in and they stole trucks from the kibbutzes and they stole and they looted Within they took TVs and they stole things, and those were the civilians. And so you see all these pro-Palestinian um, protests, and they're not pro-Palestinian. If they were pro-Palestinian, why doesn't Jordan take them in? Why doesn't Egypt take them in? Why don't these Arab countries take in these Palestinians that they seem to care so much about? Why they don't want them? Nobody wants the Palestinians because they're seventy percent pro-Hamas, and they're indoctrinated since they're children. Which I'd love to touch on the UNRWA funding too, the UN funding where this indoctrination is happening at the schools and it's being funded by the US, by uh, EU, by the European countries, right? By the Western world for this indoctrination in these schools that is bringing up these little kids to kill Israelis. So that, that the Arab countries don't, they don't want them. But yet every in the whole world, Everybody, it seems to be pro-Palestinian, but they're not pro-Palestinian. They're pro-Hamas and they're anti-Israel. That's what that is. So I don't even call them pro-Palestinian rallies because or protests. That's not what they are. They're not pro-Palestinian. They're anti-Israel and they're pro-Hamas. Yeah, we, we've seen that here. Um, the, the people live, because the media again tell us that it's sad that the people in Gaza, and obviously you have many civilians caught up in this, civilians on both sides, um, and no one wants a war situation. Uh, it's not good for any country, uh, but Israel didn't choose this. Uh, but you look at the people in, in Gaza, and on one side, it's the poor people there. They're living under a, a difficult government. But you've been to Arab Spring, different demonstrations. I know I've had many conversations with those who had lived behind the Iron Curtain in Eastern Europe. And you have uprisings, you have people uprising to overthrow those above them. And that may not be easy. And maybe me speaking as a Brit, it's easy for me to say that, but that's how history works. And surely the same thing should work in Gaza. If the people are unhappy uh, with those above them, then they should overthrow them. Yeah, and I think actually you're seeing more of that right now. You're seeing where these Hamas members are surrendering in the masses. And I think you're seeing more of the people starting to turn against Hamas. But even like when you look at the statistics and the polling, you have 73% of the people that live in Gaza, the Palestinians, they support Hamas. They're Hamas sympathizers. And a lot of that has to do with the indoctrination and the schooling since they're in um, 
since they're kids, you see these the videos of these children who have, you know, machine guns and they're taught and they're raised to just hate Israelis and they're honored if they murder Israelis. And that's their indoctrination. So you've got to break that ideology. You know, you can you can definitely eliminate Hamas as an organization, but it's an ideology that you really have to come against, which we've done in the past. You know, look at what we did with Germany and Japan. So you can come against an ideology. And that's, that's what you have to do. Um, and so that is, yeah, that is a whole different conversation, but. Well, I, that I, is a, but I am um, looking at, um, at, yeah, at, at how the, the people live, that is all, as you pointed out, it's all funded uh, by the West, that perpetual hatred, that perpetual tension when, uh, when we have politicians talk about they want peace, but at the same time they're funding a terror organization and keeping that um, that pocket of evil right on the edge, ready to kick off. Uh, it, you're right, it does seem to be that the, the West are guilty of what has happened. The UN is funding it. The UN is funding that ideology. The Western world is funding it. The United States is funding it. And under the Trump administration, they cut that funding to UNRWA. They cut the hundreds of millions of dollars to UNRWA. And Biden immediately restarted that funding again. And that funding goes directly to Hamas. And it goes directly to uh, funding that ideology in, that's taking place in that school. So if you want to start with one thing to cut, which we could do right now, is eliminate UNRWA, completely eliminate UNRWA, um, and cut that funding that's going to UNRWA. But right now they're launching... UNRWA has literally launched a Hamas campaign. That's what they're doing. They are the spokespeople for Hamas. And when you look them up and you look at the campaign that they're doing right now, you will see how they are basically launching a campaign. And it's with U.S. funding and it's with U.N. funding. So just think of that. We're funding Hamas's campaign. UNRWA, tell us what that stands for. UN refugee UN refugee refugee program, program okay. agency. Okay, uh, that 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 does explain a lot. Um, you mentioned about the Israeli people and a, a unity behind the government and the military. That hasn't always been the case, and certainly I have seen a lot of. A self-hatred, maybe mostly from Israelis and Jews who live abroad um, and look back. But with that unity, then that possibly does mean the job can be done. Tell us about that, your conversations with people. About the, the unity that's happening in Israel right yeah. now. That That is something they said they're 99% unified. And Israel too, you know, they were having, they were so divided Pre and this, other people will say, well, because the country was so divided before the Hamas attack over the judicial reforms, you know, that was uh, the big focus in Israel. That was really dividing the country. Uh, but after this Hamas attack, they have, they have, everyone has been saying they have never seen more unity. And when you get to Israel, that's what you see. You see the Israeli flags all over the country, every building, all the roads. I mean, every car has an Israeli flag. It's that, like, you're, you're unified. It was like, it reminded me of September 11th. You know, after September 11th, every single American flag was sold out. Everybody was unified. They were against terrorism, and they were unified as a nation and a world. 
the whole global community was unified. And that's where I don't understand why you're not seeing that now with, with Hamas attack. Hamas is ISIS. Hamas is ISIS. It's the same funding. It's the same, same ideology. It's the same groups. It, the same kind of the countries that are behind it, the terrorist organization, the tactics, the beliefs, the ideology, all of it's the same. So Hamas is ISIS. And the attacks that they did against the Israeli citizens when they, when they killed babies, when they cut open pregnant women, when they raped women multiple times and then burned their bodies, they beheaded people. I mean, that, that's ISIS. There, it's un, you, you can't even fathom having anyone that would even think that they could support Hamas right now or support ISIS. Just think of that if you had ISIS supporters. Think of the difference in the perspective that you would see if you had all of these students protesting for ISIS. You wouldn't see that. And if you held ISIS beliefs, beliefs, you would be prosecuted, right? The FBI is going to be hunting at your door if you showed any kind of sympathy with ISIS. But why are they not doing that with Hamas? Hamas is ISIS. Hamas is a designated terrorist organization. They come from the same sources. There's no difference in them. But yet we're allowing this like pro-Hamas um, even in our campuses, sentiment. I mean, you should, that should be, you should have the FBI at the door, even having that, just like it was with ISIS. You should have that same mentality towards Hamas. There's no reason in the 21st century to have a terrorist organization that commits those kind of barbaric, inhumane acts. I mean, they, there's just no, there's no space for that. There should be zero tolerance for that. And the world should be united as we were all united with the United States on 9-11 when we all came together, you know, for the war on global terrorism. That's what we're dealing with. This is a global war on terrorism. That's what we're fighting right now. And there should be no divide in that. And yet you're seeing it all over, especially in the UK. Oh, yeah, in the UK. I, I, I want to pick up on some of the military in the north and Hezbollah and surrounding, but let me ask you about that uh, world supports or pressure how the media have responded uh europe have always been uh, had a a very uneasy relationship uh, with israel europe have traditionally sided with with arab nations against israel america's quite different and america has generally been a, a bastion of support for israel right from the beginning from the modern day state but what is that like because you have in campuses as you see here, I guess, in the States, um, a lot of pro-Hamas, uh, pro-Palestinian, because people don't know any better. Uh, but generally, the media, up until... They're still generally holding um, to be more pro-Israel, although you see that beginning to slip. Um, and with the BBC, it maybe lasted a few days before it slipped. But I think in the US, it's lasted a lot longer. Um, Tell us about that, because not only is there a military war, but there's a, a PR and media war as well. Yeah, and that's where that was where I think there's it's starting the it's starting to shift. I think right away there was all of that pressure, and people saw that. I think the social media China was behind a lot of that on TikTok. You know, they were um, fomenting a lot of that anti-Israel. I think China was a lot behind that, especially on TikTok social media, but I think you're seeing it start to swing now. And I think because people, when they see the videos and when they see it themselves, I think you can't defend it. Like it was so barbaric and inhumane what they did. No one can defend it. 
So I think that's the difference that you're seeing. And that's why it's starting to shift is because it is ISIS. And when you, when you see what, how just, that's why when Hamas did this, like 2014, when they launched the rockets and the war in 2014, it was very different because you just look at what they, they targeted civilians, they targeted babies, they targeted women, and then they kidnapped them. They kidnapped babies. They kidnapped young little kids. And so that, I think people are seeing that anyone that is a human being, right. That has any kind of understanding or emotion, common sense would, you have to condemn it. There's just zero tolerance for that. And I think people are starting to see that. And that's why it's important for the actual videos and the reporting to happen because Hamas is launching this massive information campaign, massive information war, which they've always done. You know, they've always done. It. And that's why you're seeing even pushback on the mainstream media. You know, when just for a perfect example was, I think, several weeks ago when you had Shifa Hospital and it was and they were saying that it was Israel that hit it. Right. And it was Hamas. But yet look at the condemnation because of the false reporting. And they had to push back and to be able to report the truth. And you have members of Congress, Rashid Tlaib, you know, who was still not even believing Israel when all the evidence was there. Even when the Biden administration themselves, you know, came out and said, no, it wasn't Israel, it was Hamas. You know, you still had a member of Congress who was coming out there and uh, spewing these lies against Israel because she's, you know, like she's part of that false campaign against Israel. And so I think you can't dispute the evidence. You just can't. No matter what, you just cannot dispute the evidence. And I think that's the, the, the information war that Israel is. They still have to battle it. They absolutely have to battle it. And that's why it was important to go on the ground, too, because you have to see it yourself. You've got to report it firsthand. And, and if people were to see like what I saw in the kibbutzes and what I heard, it just it's that's what will change your perspective. That's what will make you see. And that's why it is so important for the media to report it accurately. Tara, we're seeing, you touched on the opposition in the left, in politics, in the media, and we see that as well in Europe and the UK. And our media is dominated by those in the left and politics, that in the left. But we're all seeing another curious, uh, I guess, voice come up, and that's the voices that have appeared over the last kind of three, three and a half years on the COVID tyranny, demanding freedoms, angry at the restrictions we faced. Um, and there's a lot of anger amongst that group, certainly against Israel, uh, because of how it locked down more than anyone else before. It only allowed one uh, vaccine to be used, the Pfizer vaccine. You didn't have any right to have anything else. It seemed to be a test bed, an experiment. And I think a lot of that anger against Israel, what's happened the last three, four years under that tyranny, has boiled over into hatred of Israel and Jewish hatred. And I've realized a lot of those groups are maybe more in the left and they've traditionally had that hatred of Israel. And you see it popping up time and time again, groups that I would be surprised at. Um, I don't know where is, are you having that in the US or is the opposition traditionally from the left on the politics and the media? The left and the politics and the media. I think you have the United States, you have such strong support for Israel, this, the evangelical church. Uh, supports Israel, Democrats, Republicans. It's really dividing the Democratic Party. You've got very staunch uh, pro-Israel Democrats um, 
And, you know, the Republican Party has always been very pro-Israel. And so I think you do see it on the left. I think you do see it in that um, more of the Muslim Brotherhood, I think, influence. The college campuses is probably the, the loudest where it's coming from. But again, that's where you have to look at the sources of that. I don't think it comes from the COVID lockdowns. If you're pro-Israel, you know, you, you just, for me, it's my faith. You know, God will bless Israel. Those that bless Israel be blessed. Those that curse Israel be cursed. And so you support Israel. And it's not because of who the politicians are. It's not who come, who's in office at the time. It's because God blesses those that bless Israel. And you stand with Israel. And it's a biblical mandate. And I know that's where my, my position stems from is I'm going to honor God and I'm going to stand with Israel. And it's not because of the politicians or who's in power or what their policies are. I agree. That's 100% where I come from. Um, happily call myself a, a Christian Zionist because of where the, what the Bible teaches. But then you talk to a non-Christian and you say, well, you pick Hamas or Israel. Take your choice. And don't tell me you want to live in Israel because of freedoms, but really want to hit Israel. Um, and that's, uh, yeah, wanting the freedoms, uh, but yet hitting it. It's like wanting the, uh, uh, a pride parade through Gaza, well, go for it. You could be the yeah. first, and I want to be there to film it and see what happens. That you have tolerance and freedom in one country across the board, and mm -hmm. yet across the border, not only across the border into Gaza, but in West Bank, in many of the surrounding countries, you have little freedoms. Yeah, yeah, you do, you do, and but they're they're a young country, seventy five years old, and so they're still growing. And like when you look at Israel it's a miracle, right? Like it's an absolute miracle. Everything about Israel is miraculous. It was a desert and it's turned into a Greenland and is, you know, rivers and streams and lush and green trees. And even just being there and you just see how beautiful Israel is and it's the hand of God and it's miraculous. And there's no way that anything that Israel could have existed if it wasn't for God's providence in that country and his hand in doing it. 100%. You touched on, just coming near the end, you touched on the north, and obviously uh, the Gaza Strip is is southwest. You've got the West Bank to the east, and you've got um, up there in the northern border, uh, Lebanon and Syria. You've got two countries which are failed states, in effect, um, and with Hezbollah. Uh, I mean, for a country and a military to be fighting war on one side, but yet they must be ready and prepared at a moment's notice to open up that on a second front. Um, it's horrendous, horrendous pressure. And so far, it is held off on the north. But as you say, they will have to, to deal with that. Um, but the Israeli military have shown time and time again that they're able to fight on many fronts in 48 and in 73 to attack, to fight on every single front and to be able to push that back. But that kind of, maybe touch on that, that constant state of readiness that has to be there. Everything can't just go to Gaza. It has to be prepared, not only in the North Hezbollah, but also on, on the West Bank border as well. And they are. You know, when I was there too, the IDF uh, was, Hezbollah would launch rockets at Israel and Israel would re respond. So they're well positioned to be able to respond to Hezbollah, to be able to eliminate the threat from Hezbollah, uh, just from what, you know, like a, 
what I was told is that they're going to focus on the closest threat, the immediate threat, and that's eliminating Hamas because, and that's also a quicker uh, operation than Hezbollah. Hezbollah has about 150,000 rockets. Uh, they are a much, much stronger, um, well-equipped, uh, dangerous force than Hamas. Uh, obviously, they're backed by Iran. But the one thing I think that Israel has right now is like the U.S. warships have been deployed and they they're not doing I shouldn't they're not doing the deterrence that they should do. Obviously, our trip, our troops in the region have been attacked now over 70 times uh, every day. They're adding to the attacks that are going on right now. Uh, so they need the U.S. needs to do much more deterrence. Uh, to hold Iran at bay and to prevent Hezbollah from joining the war fully. But I think what's the number one thing right now that is uh, preventing Hezbollah is that Lebanon and the civilians in Lebanon do not want Hezbollah to join the war because they're the ones that will be eliminated. And just like Hamas uses the schools and the civilians and the homes as their uh, headquarters as their military headquarters and they hold their rockets and they that's where they launch their you know all their attacks and use it as their headquarters that's exactly what Hezbollah does in Lebanon and they do it as well in the Christian communities in Lebanon then they use the schools and they hold the civilians hostage and they use the civilians as their hostages just like they do you don't hear about it as much but that's exactly what's going on in Lebanon and that's what Hezbollah is doing. They're hiding their rockets in these schools, in the hospitals. So Lebanon does not want Hezbollah to join this war. And the civilians don't because when the IDF, then Hezbollah will launch an attack from a Christian community, a village or an area. And that happened when I was there. They launched it from a Christian area. And then the IDF will respond. And then it makes it look like the IDF is hitting a church. Well, no, Hezbollah was using that church as their headquarters, as their launching pad to launch these rocket attacks. So, of course, the IDF is going to respond to eliminate the threat. They have to. But that's the tactics that they use. And I, so I think if you put pressure on Lebanon, um, and obviously the Hezbollah has you know power and control in Lebanon, but I think that's where you could really deter Hezbollah. And the UN could deter Hezbollah as well. Like They already passed in 2006 the UN Resolution uh, 1701 to be able to push Hezbollah up past the Latani River, so they're not on the Israeli border, but it's not being enforced. Hezbollah attacks the UN forces because there's not enough. They attack them. I've seen the videos of them attacking their trucks. Uh, so Hezbollah dominates in that area, and they're not even supposed to be in that area. So there are things already that exist that just are not being enforced that could really prevent um, from Israel having or from that the Northern Front really being an all-out war. Um, just f finish off on where Israel goes the, f the future, because Israel has to come out of this stronger. Um, it has to come out of this having uh, defeated Hamas and whatever that means for Gaza, that will have to be for others uh, to decide. Um, but militarily and uh, security-wise, Hasmoy the stronger. And then politically, how do you see that happening? Because Israeli politics has always been fractured. And uh, what Benjamin Netanyahu is the, the great survivor, being what PM, difference the third or fourth time now since 96. Um, and obviously that has to pass over at some point. Kind of how did you pick up on that 
political. Obviously, there's support for him, what he's doing. He needs to come out of this with a strong legacy. And I guess someone else has to also come up and continue his, I guess, his boldness and determination uh, to fight for Israel's security. So let me just touch on that, that political side. Uh, what did you feel coming away from your trip on that? I think Israel will come out stronger. I think th- that you will see um, something different in Gaza. You, you Hamas will be eliminated. And what that is, I, I didn't get the sense that Israel wants to take over Gaza. I think they, they don't want to do that. I think you'll you'll have the sovereignty of Israel. You'll have the sovereignty of Israel involved. But will that include security? Will that include Arab countries? You know, you hear talks about maybe Saudi Arabia, the UAE. Um, one country that that I don't think should have any impact at all is Qatar. Qatar should have absolutely no influence in Gaza because Qatar is the Muslim Brotherhood. They are the problem. And uh, they should be sanctioned. You know, the international community should be sanctioning Qatar. But if you have like an Arab force, if you have a UN peacekeeping force, um, some kind of security, but it's, it's Israel's sovereignty. Israel should control it's their country and they should have the, the decisions and it should be in their control to decide. It's their civilians. It's their people. It's their responsibility to keep the civilians of Israel safe and defend their country. And so the U.S., I mean, the pressure from the Biden administration in any kind of way uh, against Israel to have that sovereignty, you know, that that needs to be pushed back on and that you need to allow Israel to be able to have that sovereignty. And also, I think the sovereignty as well over uh, Judea and Samaria, you know, the Palestinian Authority, it's not okay for Israel to live under siege. That's not normal. And they shouldn't have to live that way. They should be able to eliminate the attacks. I mean, just think if we were in Texas and someone in Mexico or not someone, ter- cartels were launching attacks with rockets every day at Texan citizens and they couldn't eliminate the threat, but instead they just had to build around it to protect themselves, right? They just had to build an iron dome or you know defense system to be able to protect from the rockets instead of taking out the cartels who's launching the rockets. It makes no sense. You know, take out the threat. And so that's something that we need to get behind Israel and allow them to do that and to to support them in doing that. But I think you will see a safer Israel. You'll see more sovereignty. Um, and they and they should. And that's where I think the international community, I don't understand uh, their position in pressuring for a two-state solution because there is no two-state solution. It just doesn't exist because, you know, the Palestinian Authority is not there is no structure. It doesn't even, it doesn't make any sense. A, it's unbiblical, right? It's against God. You don't divide God's land. Um, and those, again, those that bless Israel, like America's policy, I think is directly impacted by our decisions to bless Israel. Uh, but there is just no, no common sense, viable option with the Palestinian authority. They just don't have the financial structure right now. And they want to eliminate Israel as well. Tara, really appreciate you coming along and sharing your thoughts uh, on your trip there. So thank you so much for joining us and and sharing the stories you had from your trip. Thanks. Thank you, Peter. It's so good to be with you. Thank you. If you like what we do, sign up to our mailing list. Donate, share, and subscribe to our many platforms at heartsofvoke.org. Thank you for listening.